Hello, this is Janet Gallen welcoming you to Love Letters Live. And our guest today uh, is Rose Taibbi. And Rose, I, you say hello first. Hi, everyone. And I, you know, there's so many ways to introduce Rose. And I think I'd like to, I hope we get to cover some of the things you do. But most immediately, Rose is the wife of Stephen Taibbi, who was twice a guest recently on Love Letters Live. He is the, I mean, I hope you've all seen and heard him. Uh, he is the survivor of two heart transplants. Miracle in so many ways, it's just hard to keep track of. But one of the miracles I realized was Rose, his wife. And you're also a chemotherapy nurse, right? Yes, yes. Can, can, can we start with that? What, what drew you to being a chemotherapy nurse? And what does a chemotherapy nurse actually do? So I um, actually always wanted to be a nurse from the time I was about 10 years old. Is that right? But when I began my nursing career, I started my career in just general nursing, which um, it was a very good move on my part uh, because it really uh, educated me and gave me um, an idea of what field I would like to be in. Um, I always enjoyed working with cancer patients and that's not the case for everyone, obviously. You know, I think everybody has their um, little niche. And um, for some reason, I just got a lot of satisfaction out of taking care of cancer patients. I why, why, that, that, why that in particular? What about that satisfied you? Well, it seemed to me that the cancer patients were the sickest patients. Now I'm going back a long time. So sure. things were very different back then. I'm talking about now the early eighties, uh -huh. things were very different, but they were the sickest patients and always seemed to be the most grateful patients. Uh -huh. And so, and they were also dealing with life and death facing, you know, serious issues every day. And um, it just, I guess, gave me an opportunity to think about what they were going through and also made me realize I need to count my blessings every day. Uh-huh. Okay. And then my mom's best friend at the age of 50 developed terminal cancer. Oh. And I had the opportunity to go um, with her for some of her chemo treatments. And I just, I said to my mom, Right, right in the beginning, this is something I want to do one day. Oh, good for you. Now, what, and then, what you, go ahead. No, and then I just, um, it was always on my mind. And about two years after that, I went into oncology. What do you think? I mean, I have my own feelings about this because I think most of us have dealt with nurses, either in doctor's offices or hospitals. And I've always had, not the feeling, but the um, conviction that it is the nurses who keep you going. Well, you know, I'm going to agree with you on that. So what, what do you think makes a really good nurse? You know, many years ago, I heard the term um, or the phrase, um, no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Oh, so, good. So obviously you need to know a lot. You need to be... Um, educated, you um, need to be compassionate. There are a lot of qualities that go into being a good nurse, but um, as much as you need to be educated and you need to know about your field, you also need to remember that 
Each patient is individual. Um, each patient has their own unique way of dealing with things. There's no right or wrong. Um, and the oncology patients are often very vulnerable. They may be in pain, they're afraid. And so patience and compassion are, um, I think, really required and caring for them. Okay, thank you. I agree with that. I mean, my own experience with nurses has been limited, but very, excuse me, very definite, very memorable. When did you meet Stephen? So and how um, did you meet Stephen? Okay, interesting. Um, we were both older. We were in our 30s, our mid-30s, and I had, um, we were both recently um, broken up from long-term relationships. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was at the stage of my life where I said, I guess I'm not going to get married. And then Steve and Stephen, I think was pretty much in that same position, but I had one day had a 35 year old patient who I was very close to had died. And I was going to her wake that night. And I picked up a local newspaper called the penny saver and they had um personal ads in there and just to keep my mind occupied while i was waiting to go to the wake i was looking through the personal ads and i put x's through everyone except two this was in the days before you know online dating and uh, so it was personal ads in the paper. And he had put an ad in. And uh, like I said, I crossed out all but two. I called one. And, 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 that's, how, and that's how we did it then? Yes. So there that, would be a phone mm -hmm. number for you to actually call or would you call the paper and they would hook you up? So you would call, um, I guess it was like some type of a, a, an answering service and you would uh -huh. leave a message. That's and nice. then he would get the message and call me back. So I called and left a message and I was so beside myself that I had done that, that I never called a second number. Wait, what do you that, know? Wait, 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 wait. You were, okay. <laughs> this is just delicious. You were beside yourself in what way with happiness or with nervous that you had done it or what? No, I'm like, I can't believe I did that. What made me do that? Why did I do that? I don't know who this person is. I, you know, I, I had just decided I was, you know, I was going to be okay if I never got married. Why am I looking to meet strangers? <laughs> and um, so I kind of surprised myself that I even made the call. So I didn't make the second call because I said, oh, I'm not going to do this. I'm not comfortable with it. <laughs> I got home from the wake that night and my phone rang and it was Stephen. And I started telling him that I had just come from awake and I thought, oh, this is going to make a really good impression. How depressing am I? Anyway, he listened to me. Um, and then he said, would you like to meet for coffee? Mm -hmm. And so we decided that we would. I thought that's not so intimidating. It's not like dinner or, you know, <laughs> we are not committed to uh, several hours. Right. Yes. And we met, we started talking and we saw each other every day after that. My goodness. And so, seven months. I'm sorry. Seven months later, we got married. What, what drew you to, I mean, what drew you to him and what was the first thing you learned about him? I mean, how, how soon did you learn about his whole medical journey? And okay. So 
all I could think of was when I met him, I thought, wow, he is really nice. And I was not expecting to be uh, like, I, I met, I, I agreed to meet for coffee, but I wasn't expecting anything to come from this. So I thought, wow, he's really nice. And he listened to me. He was very easy to talk to. And um, he actually was up front right away. And he told me on that first day mm-hmm. he that he had some medical issues. And because I was a nurse, he, you know, I, I asked him a few extra questions. I don't think he was going to get into too much detail, but I asked a few extra questions. And so I pretty much knew right from the beginning that he had had some issues as a child, but it did not seem to be um, anything that was going to cause problems in the near future. So um, as time went on, things changed, but I didn't know that at the time. Well, well, now, were you already with him and married by the time he went for his first heart transplant? Yes. Yes, that was about 10 years, uh, almost 10 years after we got married. Ah, okay. Okay, because I understand that that had nothing to do with the condition he was born with. It was an infection. Yeah. So, yeah, so he had had two open heart surgeries as a child, and um, which, of course, that by itself is very unusual. And then he developed um, what's called idiopathic cardiomyopathy, probably related to some type of uh, infection. That uh, led to um, inflammation of the heart muscle. And and what did you realize that called upon you to do by the time, you know, he had needed. uh, Okay. If I could back up because selfish little me, I get to learn things every day. I'm so grateful. What was the first sign that he was going to need a new heart? Okay. So he actually was gaining weight. Um, That was the first thing that we noticed. And he, his weight was really like in his belly and I was making fun of him. You know, I was calling him Buddha belly. You need to go on a diet. And, Mm -hmm. um, it was just weird because we didn't really feel like he was overeating, but he was gaining weight. Then he had gone for retaining liquids, some kind of, yes, yes. But we didn't realize at the time that it was retaining fluids because he didn't Uh have, usually if you retain fluids, your ankles are swollen and, but that didn't happen to him. His weight seemed to be around his middle. Uh And then one day he went for a walk with one of his friends um, in our neighborhood a walk that he had done many times before and he nearly collapsed. He, we had a lot of Hills in the area where we were and he couldn't make it up the Hill to our house. And that was really the first indication so did that the, did the neighbor did. come to get you. So, well, she ended up resting and um, waiting a while and then slowly, um, slowly did get back up to the house. But the fact that he really didn't think he could do it, um, was certainly scary for him. I wasn't home at the time. Um, and then they ended up, he ended up getting back up to the house. But when I got home and found out about it, I'm like, okay, we have to do something about this immediately. Oh, good. Okay. So you knew what to do. So then we went to, uh, we called his doctor and his doctor, um, ended up sending him for some tests Mm -hmm. and, um, he went for a stress test. I, I took the day off from work. Normally he would do everything on his own. I took the day off from work. I said, I'm coming with you for the stress test. 
he um, was in, I don't know how long, maybe like 10 minutes, he was in for the stress test and the doctor came out and said, um, I just want to tell you that your husband is in complete heart block and congestive heart failure. Oh. Now I'm a nurse. I know exactly what that means. And I'm thinking that is just not possible. Why did you but think it was? Well, you know, I, it, it was very surreal because I mean, he's saying such serious things and I know something is wrong, but I can't imagine it's anything that serious. Right. Um, but I certainly didn't think he was fooling around about it. Well, but it's and, also, is it also deceptive because he's such a robust, handsome looking man? I mean, he doesn't have a, a sense of frailty about him. Yes. And he really appeared. I mean, I knew he was having a problem, but honestly, I never expected it was anything cardiac until the day he couldn't walk up the hill when cardiac right. issues uh, entered my mind. But before that, I thought maybe it was something um, gastrointestinal, uh, GI problems I thought maybe he was having. But when they told me this, I was like, OK, this is more serious than I thought. And we certainly have to pursue this, but they were they were under the impression that it was even much more serious than I believed it was. And he ended up being admitted to the hospital. And did he wait in the hospital until he found a donor? Is that what happened? Well, no, he um, he was in the hospital for a couple of weeks and then was discharged. Um, that was in June of 2000. Mm -hmm. And um, in July of 2000, we went from our home in Long Island to um, a big transplant center in New York City. And um, they told him he was going to have to be on the transplant list, but that he would be able to stay at home um, until or unless he got much sicker. And um, but his certainly his activity had to be very limited. And at that point, he had been um, had a couple of episodes where he did need to go into the hospital. So he had gone into congestive heart failure again and uh, was treated for that and then was sent home with intravenous medications around the clock. That was so this was now, you know, where we're into summer of 2000 and he didn't get his transplant till March 27th, 2001 because they couldn't find a match for him sooner than that. So as fate would have it, he was lucky that he ended up with you. I mean, yeah. you, here, you pardon me? Yes, um, in the sense that I certainly was, you know, I was really on top of things. Right. Um, I mean, but I will beyond, beyond love and all that. But yeah. you do, yes. But he was um, always very independent. So I can't say that I was involved even in coordinating his medications. He took care of everything because he, he, he felt that he needed that control. Okay. And I, I understand that. So he was on intravenous medications at home. Um, we had a visiting nurse coming to the house a couple of times a week, but he was very independent through the whole thing. I have to say. I, I would guess that would be helpful enough emotionally to give some extra strength. Yes. And, you know, I was working at the time and um, it was good that he was able to handle a lot of stuff on his own when I wasn't around. I was working full time. My job was about 45 minutes from our house. And um, I had 
uh, a high pressure job. I was actually running a 15 doctor oncology practice at the time. Um, I wasn't actively doing the chemotherapy. I was running the practice. And so it was more than an eight hour day. <laughs> and, um, and my mind was all like the, always in the back of my mind was, I hope he's okay. And what if he needs me? Um, but I worked most of the time. So I was glad that he was so independent. But were you, it sounds, uh, you know, I don't know why I'm, I'm guessing this, but it sounds like you might not have been on the edge of terror the whole time yourself. No, I mean, it was my, I guess my personality is, I'm always going to be cautious, but I'm not going to worry about things that don't, uh, that aren't pertinent. And um, my only real fear was that something was going to happen to him while I was far away, which 45 minutes is not that far, but in an emergency, it would be. And, um, but I said to him, you have to promise me that if anything changes or you don't feel well, you're going to call me right away. That was in the days before self, you know, before everybody really had a cell phone, but I had my beeper. Uh And so he could always page me. There was a way he could always reach me. And I said to him, you have to promise me if it turns out to be nothing, that's fine. But if something happens or you're not feeling well, I need to know right away. So So we did have that agreement. That, so that he successfully went through this first surgery. This has to be huge and difficult and tricky as a surgery, right? Oh, yeah. So, well, when I, it's interesting. When I spoke to the surgeon after he had the, the transplant, um, I said, oh, this was quicker than I expected it to be. And the transplant surgeon said, I I swear, this is a quote. He said, it's a simple plumbing job. Okay. So I thought, oh my goodness, simple for him, I guess. But, um, and I'm glad that he thinks that way. Um, And he did, and and the surgeon did a phenomenal job and Stephen did do very well. But um, it was a real learning experience for me because that's not an area I had ever had any exposure to. So, so what happened then? So he was okay for quite some time. And the, um, when that heart failed and he needed another one, what did you think? So he had that heart for 15 years and we actually had an indication a couple of years in maybe about three years after the transplant, they, they, they had told us all along that he could reject, which with hearts, like if you have a kidney and you are um, going to have a problem, it's usually right up front. Uh-huh. Um, with hearts, you can develop what's called transplant coronary artery disease, which is a form of chronic rejection. So over time, things can progress. So three years or so into the tra- first transplant, we had an inkling that there was a potential for a problem. But you said he had that for 15 years. And he continued to do well, but he needed a couple of stents. Oh, um, stents for this transplant coronary artery disease, which is more inflammatory than, um, you know, but it's like, like having atherosclerosis and needing a stent. And so by the time he got to, um, 15 years out, which we 
were very grateful for and counted our blessings for. That's when he really could not survive any longer. Um, he had too many vessels blocked and uh, needed needed to have the, another transplant. So how unusual is that to find two donors for one person? I understand that it's even find, hard to find one donor that everything mm-hmm. ma- matches and there's not tissue problems. Yes. Or- Yes. And actually, one of the reasons that he did reject was because um, with the first heart, there's a certain number of matches that they must have um, if they can't find a 100 percent match. Mm -hmm. And so Stephen was not a 100 percent match with the first donor. But if they hadn't transplanted him at that point, they didn't know if they would find another donor in time to save his life. So Mm -hmm. um, sometimes they'll do a less than perfect match just as a life-saving measure. And so that's what happened with him. So he did develop this chronic rejection. And then um, when it was time for the second transplant, and by the way, just to add, second transplants are becoming more common now as people are living longer after transplant. So we... Yeah, so we know of um, three other people who've had two transplants. Really? Okay. Yes, yes. I mean, you you, you hope that someday this will be such an easy plumbing job. Yes. You know, I'm just wondering about, I I guess you look towards maybe the day of artificial hearts that would be effective. You know, they're um, working on 3D printing for hearts. My goodness. And what tissue do they use to print a heart? I'm not exactly sure how it works. I don't know a lot about it, but I do know that their biggest issue is trying to figure out how to do the vessels uh, because this plumbing issue um, is not so it's it's simple when you look at, um, I guess, from one anatomy to the next. But when you talk about printing, that's when it becomes more complicated. But I don't know if I'll see that in my lifetime, but I am guessing that, you know, they're going to keep working on it because that would not only be, um, well, that would not only be phenomenal, but it would really decrease the chance for rejection, which would be a wonderful thing. Oh, because if you're printing it, you can do it with certain specifications. Yep. That's my understanding. I might be off on that, but that's my understanding is that, yeah, you wouldn't have to, because rejection could be because, um, you know, there's different enzyme matches between the donor and the recipient. You have to be the same blood type. That's a requirement. And I guess, you know, when they print, they would not have to worry about certain, some of those things. Let me ask you something. What, what is, um, I'm just so overwhelmed by all this. And when you met the donor, I understand you were the one who decided to bring the stethoscope. So um, we were- The donor's family. The donor's family. We actually wrote a letter uh, we, we for the second transplant, we we ended up driving, uh, flying to California because we were in New York and New York is the lowest, um, has the lowest donation rate in the nation. And so the doctor said, if you can f- fly to California and live in California for a while, um, that's where you'd probably be able to get a transplant sooner. He, they told us that he would not survive the wait in New York. Right. So we went to California and, um, which is, which was doing most of the transplants at the time. Mm-hmm. 
And um, before we even left, we, we were in California for three months after the transplant, but before we even left there, we, Stephen and I both wrote letters to the donor family because we wanted to let them know how grateful we were. I, I remember Stephen talking about this. And I just want to say that because I am Love Letters Live, I am so about the power of letters, unmatched. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it was, we had no way to contact them directly. Right. So we wrote a letter to the transplant um, organization and they forwarded it to the family. Right. And what I really wanted them to know was from the day I need, I knew he needed a transplant, I started praying for the donor because I could not pray that Stephen get a transplant because someone else has to die for him to get a transplant. How could I pray for that? But I could pray that if he was to get a transplant, that his donor would be at peace. And so I prayed for the donor and the donor family from the day I knew he needed the transplant. Mm-hmm. We wrote the letter and I wanted them to know that. I don't know. That was that was important to me that the family knew that he was always in my prayers. Sure. And so we were very pleasantly surprised then when we received a letter back from his mom. And that and, and that was a while longer, wasn't it? That was. Yes, right it away. was. Mm-hmm. No, it did not happen right away. It was months later and we uh, weren't even sure if we were going to hear from her from anyone. Um, and when we got the letter, we were very pleasantly surprised. And Stephen, she left her phone number, Stephen called her. And we made plans to go out to California, back to California to meet them. And what a wonderful experience. What wonderful people. Oh, I can, you know, I can imagine, you know, I, I think about the mother. Yeah. Of this boy and uh, young man. And just what it takes for a person to be so filled with compassion and something else that in the midst of this awful tragedy of his dying, she was able to move into some kind of action where she saved other lives. Yes. And we always say, you know, there's, there's no right or wrong. I think you have to do what you feel comfortable with. Of course, right. we're in a position where we do encourage organ donation. Right. Um, but to actually be faced with having to make that decision in that, at that critical moment. We when you're, when you're just finished with your own grief. I mean, that is, that is the mark of something special. Mm-hmm. She well, said that it gave her um, some, um, some, I guess, rationalization uh, to say that if he had to die under these circumstances, he could at least be a hero for oh, someone okay. else. Okay, I was just going to wonder if that was the word. He could do something heroic. By, uh, yeah, I want to thank you for doing this with me. Oh, I'm, my I'm pleasure. So glad that we met, and there's there's so much to be said, and. You're a remarkable human being. Well, I knew that yeah. from talking to you on the phone for 20 seconds. Thank you, <laughs> well, Peter. I hope, uh, I hope our paths cross in other ways over life. And if you or Stephen ever have something else that you would like to share and talk about on Love Letters Live, you let me know. Oh, that's wonderful. And it, it is my pleasure. Thank you, dear. Thank you so much. Okay. Oh, thank you. I'm going to tell you goodbye for now. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye.